we're going to take our Bibles together and encourage you uh, to turn to Revelation 16. As Josh mentioned, uh, the Word of God matters to us, and as, even as we sang these ancient words, martyr's blood stains each page, uh, meaning that those who have held to the testimony of Jesus, as we find out in Revelation, some have been killed for faith, killed for trusting, and uh, trusting in the words of, of this book. So it's important that we take it all to heart. Uh, some parts of the scriptures are difficult. As we read through this morning, you'll probably find that this is one of those challenging passages of scripture. So we're going to read it together and uh, trust that the Spirit of God will do something among us that uh, no mere man can accomplish. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 16. I'll read the whole chapter for us. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It is God speaking. It's authoritative. Let's take it to heart. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched with the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of the God, of God the Almighty." Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. This is God's word. Let's pray. Join me, please, as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. Our Father, these ancient words are ever true, 
and they change us even as we sang. We know that's true because your word says it. Because they're living and active. They're sharper than a, sharper than a double-edged sword. And Father, even uh, challenging passages like this have value for us. And so we pray that your spirit would make that clear to our hearts. God, that you would be with both proclaimer and hearer, that in this room would be accomplished the exaltation of the Lord Jesus and the, and the uh, explanation of the judgments and the righteous acts of God towards evil. Change us, we pray. Make us more like Christ. Prepare us for the day of his return, even as we hear your word. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Well, from the Bible, we learn a lot about what God loves. He loves his creation. You know, when he created everything, he said it was good. We also know he loves the people he created when he, when he made man and woman and put them in the garden about them. He said, very good. We also know that God loves his own glory. He loves his goodness. And he wants to share that with the people that he has created, that he loves. But we can also learn, of course, from the scriptures about things that God hates, things that he finds absolutely loathsome. God hates anything that steals his glory. God hates anything that destroys or corrupts what he has made. And because God is righteous, his hatred is just. It's right and it is necessary. I realize that my sermon title could be a little misleading by just wrath. I'm not saying merely wrath, rather just as righteous. I think you get that, but that which God hates must ultimately meet with his wrath. His wrath is righteous. And that righteous, wrathful response is necessary. It's necessary as a response to the things that God finds truly hateful and loathsome. As the psalmist says in Psalm 11, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. But understand as well that God's wrath is, is measured. It's precise. In fact, God holds himself to the same standard that he holds humankind to. Or else he wouldn't have set that standard. God, God commands man to execute justice in the same way that God would execute justice himself. It is measured. As it says in Leviticus 24.20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The punishment must fit the crime. The Latin term uh, lex talionis, proportionate justice. And that, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that, that is what is in view here in Revelation 16. In fact, he's all already said that in verse 6. It is what they deserve. Now from the last chapter of Revelation, we learned uh, that the seven angels that we encountered in this part of the passage, the seven angels with these seven plagues, they're intended to complete the wrath of God. Now here we are in, in chapter 16, the voice from the temple in heaven, the voice of God then releases the angels to pour out these bowls. Now, I want to remind you uh, that in the Bible, and particularly here in Revelation, we see that the number seven, that's a, a divine 
uh, number. It's a number of divine completion. And so, so what we're supposed to understand, I take it, is that these bowls, like the seals and like the trumpets before, what they do is they represent the totality of God's just response, his just response to, to evil on the earth, his wrath. It's the totality of it, the completion of it. Now you might think, why bowls? Well, they're containers, and so that could be. That they're, it's stored away for a, for a day of, of pouring out. But I think here's another allusion, allusion to Old Testament prophets. And, of course, it is the Old Testament and the prophets where we encounter a lot of this imagery uh, before we even get to reading Revelation. These things have shown up in other parts of the Scripture, in particular, like I said, the prophets. So here, another allusion. Uh, specifically, as regards to bowls, Isaiah 51 says there, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath and have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And what I, I take from, from uh, Revelation here in, in chapter 16 is that these bowls, like in Isaiah 51, these bowls here are likened to a, a large quantity of wine that, that results in drunkenness. And, and I, I take it that the imagery here is conveying that the wicked, those who have done these wicked things, those who have rejected the Lord, I take it that they've brought the judicial consequences upon themselves. They have drunk the wine of staggering. They chose evil, so therefore they are choosing the judicial consequence that follows. Again, many allusions here to the Old Testament. It's also not surprising that some of these bowls that we, that we see, if you, if you were to read in Exodus, I think beginning in chapter 7, where we see the, the plagues that were unleashed on Egypt before they finally let go of the Israelites and, and let them leave, they're, they're patterned after some of those plagues. Here in Revelation 16, the whole earth, that is under the deceptive spell of the dragon, that's verse 2, these are named as the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. These are those who persecute and kill God's people. These are likened to Egypt. They're likened to the Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians who, who oppressed the Israelites, who abused them, refusing to bend the knee to God. As we look to these, these bowls, these first four bowls, these plagues, they affect the whole humanly habitable environment. So the first four, it's on the earth, the sea, the springs, and I take it that that's re uh, understood to be fresh water. The sun representing that which is above the sky, but certainly that has an impact on life on the planet. So these first four bowls are judgments that ultimately affect the living environment for humanity. And we see the first bowl. It's of painful so uh, sores. Again, it's like that sixth plague of boils in Exodus chapter 9. It's a consequence of the beast worshipers having worshipped the beast. It's a consequence. And it brings this physical suffering on, on them as because they have, in their allegiance to the beast, brought suffering on the very people of God. So they're painful sores. The second and third bowls, we see that there's blood here. Blood in the seas, blood in the springs, 
That's like the first plague in Exodus chapter 7. And if we were to look at that first bowl, the, the blood in the seas, what that does is it ultimately destroys commerce. But then the blood in the springs, it, it, it destroys the, the drinking water. And these bowls, we're told, are the consequence for persecuting and killing the people of God. They were economically deprived as they were in Egypt, right? So the, the beast and the worshipers of, of the beast and his image, they have persecuted the people of God. They have deprived them of economic opportunity and ultimately have, have killed some of them. So they've deprived them of, of the basics of life and it's blood for blood consequence. Verse 6, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserved. It's what they deserved. It's measured. It's just. Well, as we get to the fourth bowl, the scorching sun, what that does is it reveals the hardened rebellion. The hardened rebellion of those who, are, who have the mark of the beast and worship its image. And again, these are all those, just to, just to make this clear, all those who do not have the mark of God, do not have the mark of the Holy Spirit. They are not counted among the people of God. There's no in-between. It's not like, well, there's people who have the mark of the beast and, and some in-betweeners who haven't decided yet and, and people who are belonging to the Lord. No, it's either or. Either you're in the camp of the redeemed or you're in the camp of the beast. And their hardened rebellion against the Lord in response to what they do, verse 9, they curse the name of God. God has power over these plagues and they curse God for their suffering and they, they did not repent, it tells us. They did not give him glory. Which if we just pause right there, one of the things that it would seem that we would take from this is that when God permits suffering in the world, it is an occasion for people to recognize where that suffering comes from as a result of their own sin, and not necessarily specifically things that we have done, but sin in the world, we, humanity, have corrupted the whole thing, and it brings suffering. It's an opportunity when suffering occurs to look inward and say, I am a contributor to this. I, along with the rest of the people in this world, have contributed to this mess. And repent and say, God, save me. And that salvation is not necessarily from the temporal suffering, but certainly from the eternal suffering that would follow. But there are those who, who look at suffering in the world and difficulty and they just curse God. They do not repent. They do not give Him glory. Well, as we move to the fifth through the seventh bowls, so the First four bowls, those were focused on the habitable environment of the earth. The fifth of the seventh bowl reveals God's wrath now against spiritual forces. And of course, that wrath does encompass those who worship the beast. So it does encompass people on the earth, but it is, it is ultimately poured out on the spiritual forces with the effect of overflowing to all who are in the sphere and the command of those evil forces. We see in the, the fifth bowl, that's a judgment on the throne of the beast. And I'll just remind you again where I'm coming from on this beast. I, I don't take it necessarily that it needs to be an individual. 
but because the example is in Daniel that a beast is a nation or a power structure, I take it that it could be a kingdom, a government, a, a power center, an economic uh, controlling authority, something that has power over life. It's a judgment against that power structure. And I take it that the throne is not a physical throne, but really represents the seat of the beast's authority, that wherever the, 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 the concentration of that power is. And what this, this bowl does, this judgment does, it brings this oppressive darkness. And, and so we're brought back again to, to the plagues on Egypt, the ninth plague in Egypt. Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go. And this oppressive darkness overtook them covered them. That's Exodus chapter 10. And the same darkness here we're, we're to see is, is, is this judgment on the throne of the beast. And added to that, then the painful sores, the people then gnaw their tongues in anguish. And this still does not lead them to repentance. They show their hardness towards the Lord. Rather, they curse God. That sixth bowl sees the Euphrates dried up. That river um, in the Middle East, uh, it's still there today. And so this is what's in view here. That Euphrates is dried up, making it possible then for the kings of the earth to assemble. So they're coming from the east and they're crossing over. Now, what do we make of this? I think what is in view here, again, another Old Testament allusion. I think it's uh, what's in view here is the prophecy uh, that was against ancient Babylon that they would be defeated. And it was ultimately that, that prof prophecy that Babylon would be defeated and crushed. It was fulfilled when, when Cyrus, uh, Medo, uh, Medo or Persian, I can't remember, but eventually the Medo-Persian Empire that took over, Cyrus diverted, he diverted the Euphrates. And, and you can see this in Isaiah 44, 27 and 28. And what that did was it allowed him to gain this victory over Babylon. And that victory over Babylon effectively freed the Israelites. It was to their benefit. It allowed those exiles the opportunity to re, uh, resettle the land, to have the temple rebuilt, to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Now here in the sixth bowl, this unholy trinity is pictured. So you see that in, uh, this is um, verse 13 through, through 16. You see that there. Six bowl. And, and what happens there is that uh, the, this plague with these frogs coming out of the, this unholy trinity. There's the dragon, there's the beast, and then there's this false prophet. So it's like a counterfeit to God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So these demonic frogs, again, bringing us back to one of the plagues in Egypt, they're, they're spewing out these blasphemous and deceitful, um, deceitful signs, deceiving the kings of the earth so that they would ultimately come in and gather. So the 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 
the drying up of the Euphrates allows them to ultimately assemble. And so that restraint is removed. And they think they're going to band together and oppose God's people. What they don't know is that they're being gathered to their own destruction. And they are gathered at this place, we're told in the text, called Armageddon. Again, another Old Testament, um, Old Testament reference. Armageddon means the, the mount or plain of Megiddo. So I take it it's not a physical location. You know, I take this as all very symbolic. Uh, but it is symbolic in the Old Testament where major battles were won by the Israelites. And, and a couple of examples, Barak in, in the book of Judges against Cicero. Or later on, King Josiah against Pharaoh. Battles fought by the Lord on behalf of God's people and great victory is won. And what is, uh, what is um, common about that is that the Lord drew the enemy into that place where they'd ultimately be destroyed. So it was at Megiddo, Armageddon. And here is pictured in, in John's vision is that the God is making the way, drawing these kings so that they think they're going to oppose the people of God and ultimately, ultimately they're defeated there. So what this does, this sixth bowl, it really sets up the ultimately, ultimate defeat of the wicked nations, which hands the victory to Christ. And I'll remind you how this is prophesied and how it has come to be in what John sees. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Sixth bowl, setting up for that ultimate, ultimate victory of the Lord Jesus over all the nations of the earth. Now, the seventh bowl, and we're done with the explanation in a moment here. The seventh bowl that is poured out into the air. So why the air? I take it that the air is, is, is figurative, really, for the assembly of all the demonic powers. So all that Satan has under his control that, that corrupt the earth, that tempt, the air is figurative for that, that assembly. In fact, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul refers to uh, Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And with this bowl, there is lightning, thunder, earthquake, massive hailstones, and again, we're drawn back to the plagues in Egypt, the hail. And in this judgment, God remembered Babylon. All of this comes together. The Lord remembers. The Lord is taking account of all that has been done by those who have the mark of the beast, by all of the power influenced in the world over the lives of people, to persecute the people of God. God remembers. And in verse 17, he declares, it is done. And with this, the wrath of God is complete. Now, there will be more descriptions of this. So we're not done with the descriptions of God's wrath and how Babylon falls. We'll see that in the next chapters. But this represents here the finality of God's just wrath on sin. And I want you to just pause here for a moment. The voice from the temple declares, it is done. Does not, 
Does that not sound familiar? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, nailed there, spikes in his hands and his feet, lifting himself up to prevent suffocation, but way, way beyond the physical suffering that he experienced, the very fact that he bore in his own body the weight of sin of all who would look to him in faith. And just as he gave up his life, he says, it is finished. You see, there's two occasions in Scripture where the wrath of God is finished. The wrath of God is finished on Jesus for all who have trusted in him. But for all who have said, no thanks, it's the bulls. It's the horrific ending of that great battle that the Lord Jesus will destroy his enemies with the word of his mouth. And it will be finished. Between now and that time is the time to decide where do you want to be? Do you want the wrath of God satisfied for your sin on you at the end? Or alternatively, because of the immensity of the grace of God on Jesus? And there is the decision today. If you look to Jesus in faith, if you trust that he is the son of God who bore your sin at the cross, if you abandon any ideas of being in control of your life and you, you throw yourself at the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that declaration that Jesus made on the cross can be for you. Because when you stand before God someday at that judgment, the only thing that you can say Jesus said, it is finished. And that will be everything, the ultimate verdict. Well, I haven't made any particular points. I've only explained the passage as, as far as I see it. So what does God hate as a result of all of this? So this is where we, where we can maybe draw some, some conclusions about what is being judged here in this. And the first thing that I see that God hates is idolatry. He hates idolatry. Now, it's been said that um, Memorial Stadium on Saturdays in the fall is the biggest worship gathering in Nebraska. You might have heard that. And I probably have said it too, implying that there's a kind of idolatry. But I think in fairness, that's a massive overstatement. I know Husker fans certainly love their team, for better or worse. Right? Yesterday was rough. But I really doubt that football tops the list of ultimate priorities for most fans. I doubt that. When it comes to, to idolatry, it's understanding. It's what you revere the most, that one thing or person that has your ultimate allegiance, that thing or person that defines how you live, that which you ultimately trust beyond anything else. That is your God. And if that is not the true and living God revealed in the Bible, that is idolatry. The first of the Ten Commandments says, 
you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. No other allegiance before me, above me. In Deuteronomy 6, it's, it's explained more fully. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Do you see what that is? It's, it's everything in you. There isn't any room for, for, for vacillating. It's the totality of who you are saying, God, you are my God. You're ultimate to me. Now understand this, and I think sometimes people misunderstand why God would make this command. He did not give this command because he needs anything from us. God does not need our worship. God is not somehow empty if we do not fall down and praise him. No, that's not it. When God is first in our affections, and God knows this, when God is first in our affections, we have the greatest peace. When God is first in our affections, we have the greatest contentment the greatest sense of purpose, the greatest sense of harmony with creation because it is God's design for us. That is why God should be first. Now, because he's a destroyer and a liar, Satan, he finds this perverse satisfaction in taking that worship away from God and taking it to himself. And he did this ever since he deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. He's been about... He's been about the business of, of deceiving people into thinking that there could be something or someone else other than the true and living God having first place. And you can see this in, in the way we're, we're told about this Satan. He was so bold even to attempt to get the Son of God to bow down to him. We see this in, uh, perhaps you know this story from Matthew chapter 4. The devil took him, that is Jesus, took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. See, Satan's claiming, well, this is mine, right? And he says to Jesus, all these I'll give you, I'll give you, if you'll fall down and worship me. Of course, Jesus resists that temptation, tells him to get lost. But having lost that battle, the book of Revelation reveals now how Satan is this ultimate counterfeiter, right? And he sets up this unholy trinity, this is verse 13, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, to distract, to take, to steal glory, to steal worship from the true God. Now, since Jesus walked the earth, Satan has been tempting. He wants us to defy the first commandment. And any sense of success that he has, any sense of that, it's those who do not have the seal of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he's not successful because those that the Lord has chosen, those that the Lord has determined to save will be saved. All that the Father, Jesus said, has given to me, will come to me, and all that come to me, I'll never cast out. So Jesus' victory is, is sealed. But all who oppose him, Satan loves to get their worship. These are the people who bore the mark of the beast. They worshiped its image. Again, I take it that this mark of the beast isn't a physical mark, but it's an anti-Christ spirit. We see it all around us. We see it in our culture today. It's, this isn't hidden from us. It's this spirit that rejects God as ultimate. It bows down to anything else. In Revelation, we see that this spirit is, is this anti-God human achievement. First shows up in Genesis 11 in, in Babel, also known as Babylon. 
And that spirit has been at work throughout all of human history. We see it. It's subtle. It's, it's insidious. It's, it's a way of taking the good things that God gives to us, the good aspects of his common grace, like education or, or scientific discoveries or economic strategies, political theories. And what it does, it makes them ultimate. It puts them at the top for human well-being. It says, this is where we find our hope. And so you, you get crazy theories that we've seen over the years, population control theories. Can you imagine? I mean, in the 70s, if you were, if you were remember back then, old enough, they were saying, we've we got to control the population of the earth. Anti-God, because what did God say? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's a godless idea. Population control theories, marketing, climate control strategies. Oh, we got to worship the earth. The earth is ultimate, right? We got to, we, yes, stewardship, I get it. But it's inverted. God said, you, you are the one who is to subdue the earth. And the climate strategies and all of this stuff, it's like it's inverted. It's Mother Earth. Again, anti-God. It's, it even invades medicine. And you see it in things like queer theory, Marxism, even capitalism, abortion, gender reassignment. All of these things are, are the result of anti-Christ spirit that says we can find our ultimate if we do these things. See, looking to these things, you're ultimately willing to trade away God's moral law. And you do that, they do that for the sake of short-sighted view of well-being. And that's idolatry. It's idolatry, and God hates it. And for that, his wrath is absolutely justified. In unleashing his wrath, God reveals ultimately the futility of Baal, Ashtoreth, Chehmash, Dagon, Milcom, Marduk, Scientology, Hinduism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, ancestor worship, Islam, Christian science, Mormonism. He exposes them for what they are, demonic and empty of life. God hates idolatry and it will be judged. Second, we see that God hates persecution. God hates it when his people are persecuted. Now, parents, you understand this. If you have little children, you know that there's, there's this sense of rage, and I don't think that word is too strong, if someone should maliciously hurt your child. Now, if you just pause there. Someone attempts to hurt your child. I know what's going through your mind. Something akin, perhaps, to rage. And even if no one has hurt your child, just imagining it can well up these ideas in you, right? What you feel when someone hurts your own, that is a dim, and I say very dim, reflection of the righteous anger that God has towards those that persecute and kill his people. Whatever that is in you, God's righteous wrath is that much bigger. Five and six, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now, the whole idea of people dying for their faith, that's not happening here. But it is happening today. Persecution is very real for Christians in Pakistan and Iran, 
probably China. Persecution is very real in places in the world. We've been insulated from it. I don't know that that's going to continue, but it's happening. And God hates it. God hates it. So this third bowl is, is God's response to what John saw back in the fifth seal. Remember the souls there under the altar. They've been calling out. They're under the altar pictured there. They've been calling out to the Lord. They were slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. And they, this is what they cried out. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood and those who dwell on the earth? Dealing righteously with the persecutors of God's people is certainly a theme found in the prophets as well. Again, language borrowed perhaps from, from uh, in, in verses 5 and 6. It seems very similar to maybe Isaiah 49, 26. Listen to what it says there. This is how much it matters. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God hates persecution. And part of God's justice, part of his righteous wrath towards persecutors is the vindication of his people. See, it's not enough that God will deal with those who kill. It's not enough that they receive a just retribution. He wants all creation to know, these are my cherished people. These lives matter. Brothers and sisters in Christ, understand this. If you should be happen to be killed for your faith. But set that aside. Unlikely when we live. But if you should be persecuted for your faith. That's not something that God says, oh well, tough it out. I mean, the Apostle Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as something strange were happening to you. He's speaking about persecution. So in one sense, we're supposed to be prepared for it. But, but God, God does not think of, that it's a small thing. God loathes it. And God will judge it. And you and I may go to our graves and never experience that vindication, but on the last day, all Flesh will know that God is our Savior. So, hopefully that will give you some strength to endure suffering. Well, finally, God hates pride. Hates pride. I think that's obvious from the Bible. If you've just read the Bible, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. But I think if there's one essential and destructive ingredient behind every sin, so if you're just to unpack every single thing that is a sin, I think, I think it's pride. Pride is simply elevating yourself over others, but ultimately over God. And, and it's very much exemplified here in Revelation. And it shows up in blasphemy. And we see this, uh, uh, this reviling. Blasphemy is reviling, speaking evil about. So, so blasphemy, I want you to think about this. When you blaspheme God, and we see this in verse 9. I should re reference where we are. Verse 9, they cursed. Blasphemos is the Greek. They cursed the name of God. They did not repent and give him glory. So it's, think about this. To, to blaspheme God. To, to imagine that you could speak 
to or about God in a demeaning way. That, that you would presume to stand nose to nose with God and accuse him of anything. To diminish his character because you don't like how your life is going. As if he owes you anything at all. That is a, a hubris that is astounding. We see this in verse 9, like I said, and also verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven. They didn't like how their lives were going. They didn't repent of their deeds, their suffering. I mean, it is the judgment for sin. Now, we've seen this, have we not? We've seen where suffering evokes a kind of response in people who curse God. Oh, maybe they don't, maybe they don't um, use damning words for God. But maybe they'll say, how can God treat me this way? How can God do this to me? If God is love, how, how can he allow this suffering? If God is, well, I refuse. I refuse to trust a God who would allow a throne of love. That's a kind of cursing God. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let, let me just caution you here. I know the temptation comes in when you're suffering to, to think, God, what are you doing to me? Just take a step back. Is God sovereign or not? Is he good or not? And we can lament our suffering and, and, and long like the souls under the altar, longing for God to make things right. But don't take the step that the world takes, cursing God, blaspheming his name. That's a kind of a pride that is condemnable. Well, we also see there's this opposition to God by opposing his people, and God hates that too. And that's pride. Thinking somehow that, that a force, a power structure, in this case the beast here in Revelation, could somehow gain ascendancy and, and put down the people of God. That kind of pride, God hates. He sees how it happens, though. The demonic frogs that come out of the mouth of the, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, deceiving the kings of the nation ultimately to assemble, thinking somehow that they're going to band together and put to death, put out these Christians, these people who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And they don't know they're going to their own demise. It would seem, and, and we do see hints of this, don't we? In culture, it would seem that the powers that be view the people of God somehow as a barrier to their goals, as a impediment to progress. You're just on the wrong side of history. I wonder if what is being portrayed here in this gathering of the kings at Armageddon is maybe John is hearkening back to Ezekiel 39, where the same thing is, is, is shown to us. Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshuk and Tubal. I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then, so you see God is leading them. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall in the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of the prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. 
There's a coming a day, brothers and sisters in Christ, when the enemies of God will be crushed, and that will be a glorious day. It will be. The name of Jesus will be vindicated, and the people of God will share in his glory. So what do we do with all this? Holes, the things that God hates. And as I read through, I'm thinking, what, what is the application here? Well, there's an interesting parenthetical remark in, in verse 15. And in your Bible, if you're reading it, you can see it's bracketed. It says this, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Well, you get it, right? That the thief who steals your belongings, he doesn't denounce his intentions in advance. It's sudden. It's catastrophic. Judgment day will not be expected for those who do not bear the mark of God, but who indeed bear the mark of the beast, and it will be catastrophic. So, John's parenthetical remark, and seeing all of this, I, I take as an exhortation for us, stay awake. Stay awake, not woke. Stay awake. How do you know if you're awake? You see, we encounter this, right? We, we see this scripture and say, well, what does this have to do with me? I, I think it's here so that we can see the spirit of the Antichrist and see what is accomplished and then see the end. And not buy in, not participate set boundaries of resistance as the people of God to not throw a lot in with metaphorical Babylon. But if you want to know if you're awake, here it is. You're awake if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You are awake if you believe that he was crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. You're awake if he you believe that he did that to cover your sin and bear the full measure of the wrath of God in your place. You're awake if you're confident that in Jesus' resurrection from the grave, you have the unbreakable promise of eternal life with him forever, and it's what you want. You're awake if that is true. You're awake because you belong to Christ. You're awake because you're marked and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So, John is saying, stay awake. Remind yourself who you are. And as you see the world around you, know what you're seeing. Be on guard for the work of Satan. Be on guard for the teachings of false prophets. Be on guard for the blasphemies against God. Be on guard for that unrepentant spirit. Be on guard for the idolatry and the evil schemes. Listen, as a child of God, you have been rescued from idolatry and pride. And as the redeemed in Christ, you are to live the opposite of what God is judging here. So take that exhortation because the spirit dwells within you, you can. So here it is. Be a worshiper of God, a true worshiper, heart, soul, and strength. God seeks that from you. It's for your good. Second, God hates persecution, but 
as believers in Jesus, we need to be willing to suffer for righteousness sake, knowing that God will one day make it right. And above all, because God loathes pride, just live in a posture of humility before the Lord and others. And in so doing, I believe we'll remain faithful until that day of Jesus' return. May it be true of us, church. Let's pray. God, we know you hate sin. We know you hate pride. We know you hate idolatry. You hate when your people are persecuted. God, we want to be counted among the awake this morning. We want to live as awake people. So, God, would you give us discernment about the evil that's going on around the world around us? Help us to be light for those who are you are saving, to lead them to the glory of Jesus, to let them know about the gospel, the very death of Jesus that is their forgiveness of sins if they would simply trust. God, as your church in this community, keep us as a faithful light to the gospel and keep us hopeful for that day of Christ's return. And we ask this all in Jesus' name.